One small step for Apple, one giant leap for global sourcing strategies. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Apple is reportedly going ahead with plans to replace the wireless communication chips in iPhones, previously made by Broadcom, with its own manufactured components. But the move isn't being taken in isolation. It's part of a wider trend by Apple, and maybe others too, toward the insourcing of certain key elements in its devices. Just how much wider is the question? And we get answers in my conversation today with Simon Geel, Vice President of Procurement with Proxima, a consultancy specializing in procurement and the supply chain. Is Apple out to save money, reduce the risk of future supply chain disruption, reconfigure its entire supply chain, or position itself to innovate more quickly in a fast-changing market? Or is it all or some of the above? We discuss the larger implications of high-tech manufacturers backing away from the time-tested model of outsourcing assembly and components and why it's happening now. And we consider those elements of the supply chain that can never be brought in-house. Does all of this signal a fundamental restructuring of global trade? Here's my conversation with Simon Geel. Simon Geel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. Nice to be here. Simon, we know that Apple's now moving ahead with its plans to replace the communication chips in its iPhone, its wireless communication chips in its iPhones that were originally made by, or up to this point, have been made by Broadcom with its own manufactured components. What is the significance of that move? And does it signal kind of a larger trend by Apple toward bringing more of the production stages in-house? I think it is pretty significant, Bob, and I think it's easy to sort of underplay its significance because in in the short term, perhaps the effects might not be so big, but it does signal a longer-term trend, and it does signal a change in the dynamics between Apple and its supplier relationships. I think it also follows a trend that we're seeing elsewhere in tech or likely to see elsewhere in tech as, as more organizations try and take control of the sort of where the value is, if you like, and they're seeing that in some of the design and, and chip production. It's interesting because Tim Cook, who is now CEO of Apple, pretty much made his name in supply chain by devising this rather complex supply chain that Apple has all over the world and parceling out different portions of manufacturing and design to different places. And now it seems like I just wonder if this one move is signaling a wholesale reversal of that trend? And if so, what do you think are some of the factors that underlie that decision? Well, first of all, I do think it signals a reversal. But there is some precedent because Apple has taken some of the chip design in-house in some other products. But if you look back, now Apple's been investing into China in particular or into its supply chain for 25 years now. And if you were to pick up a textbook, uh, any time up to, say, two years ago and read it, what Apple's done in its supply chain would probably be seen as a case study. Mm. Huge amounts of investment, supportive supplier development, and then running a very efficient but still design-led operation. Now, this does signal a bit of a control because 
in taking the design back in-house, what Apple's actually doing is it's leaving some of the more, let's say, contract manufacturing. So still skilled, but lower skilled type of work, which is generally seen through more of a quality, speed and cost lens, and actually sort of pushes that proportion of Apple's supply chain to much more of a mass production, low cost, lower margin type operation. So essentially, they're taking some of the higher margin, higher profitability work away from those suppliers and leaving them with some of the more capital intensive, higher productivity based, lower margin activity. So it will signal a change in the dynamics with the, with the supply chain. Now, as we know, as supply chain professionals, anytime you take something back in house, anytime you outsource something, anytime you make a fundamental shift, you do come up against obstacles. And there'll be the usual suspects, things like investment, infrastructure, talent and skills, the time to set up, the cost to set up, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, Apple's in a bit of a special position because it'll be watched so closely by Washington and Beijing. When you describe what Apple's doing here, do you consider this to be more of a cost play for Apple, an efficiency play, a reliability play? In other words, what does it stand to benefit from making this change? Actually, I see this more as an innovation and ownership play. I think vertical integration of a supply chain is nothing new, but and it is becoming more popular across a lot of industries, particularly dealing with disruption. But in electronics and high tech in particular, we're starting to see more and more of it. And I expect to see more and more of it over the next decade. You know, we've seen it at a national level with the EU and the US in particular, you know, trying to get a march on the next generation of chips. But I think Apple's essentially saying that it thinks that this is the right business strategy for Apple. And if you listen to Tim Cook, he sort of said, I want to own and innovate. I want to lead in the markets which I choose to be in. And I think Apple probably believes that this gives it a design and innovation edge. And so it's probably thinking about things like IP, speed to innovate, the ability to quickly change course around bespoke strategies. And I expect other leading tech firms will make similar moves, actually, reflecting sort of how important this unique differentiation is becoming to their value propositions. To what extent do you think that the microprocessor shortages the last several years served to kind of wake up Apple to this, or do you think they would have gone ahead with it anyway because the chips that they're producing are specialized chips, not necessarily the mass production kind that, say, the automotive industry might take advantage of? How much were they influenced by recent events? That's a difficult question to answer, Bob. I think it's probably a reflection of geopolitical tensions, the shifting dynamics of ownership across those regions and their desire really to own that edge and to be the people who are in control of their own destiny in terms of experience and innovation. I think a lot of the, whilst the supply chain challenges over the last two years will have woken everybody up and forced Apple and others, as, as everybody's doing it, take a sort of risk-adjusted view of their supply chains and that, that will have had an influence. The fact that contract manufacturing is still happening in low-cost locations all around the world, and all right, there are some shifts there. Those risks are still there in their supply chain. They're perhaps just not just there in the design phase. But it can't be easy to make a move of this magnitude. I'm just wondering what kinds of challenges, what kinds of roadblocks might Apple expect to encounter as it makes this shift in sourcing? No, it's absolutely not easy, as anyone who's who's done it or uh, or tried to do it, will attest to. You can group sort of challenges into into two, really. I think, firstly, on the setup challenges, so 
back to things like the levels of investment required, getting the infrastructure set up, finding the right talent and skills, making sure you've got the value chain and supply chain set up in that local location, wherever it may be. And we've seen examples of this with TSMC investing into, uh, I think it's Arizona, isn't it? Something like $40 billion. We're talking mm-hmm. about huge amounts of money, All right, it's a different setup, but huge amounts of money to go and set something up. I think on the other side of the fence, you've got the relationships with their existing supply chain, as we've, we've just been talking about. Anything that you do that changes the dynamics in those relationships, particularly if you're taking away profitability or pushing low-cost, high-volume work onto a supplier that's trying to break out of that market, is going to change those dynamics. And so that means that they're going to have to pay very close attention to those supplier relationships and make sure that they're essentially still investing in them. Because ultimately, over the last quarter, they lost something like 8% of shipments down to disruption. Now, they don't want to be causing the disruption. Well, what do you think this is going to mean for the existence of overseas manufacturing hubs like Zhengzhou and others in China? We're not talking here about necessarily Apple actually assembling iPhones in its own factories. I'm assuming they would continue to turn to contract manufacturers such as Foxconn to do that. But what happens to those hubs? Do they shift? Do they fall apart? And for that matter, uh, does this signal another example of trying to quit China. That's a really, really interesting place to focus, Bob. And when you look at iPhone City, so Apple's been investing there for about 25 years. Apple only employs about 15,000 people there. But if you summed up the people in the supply chain in and around the region, it's 1.5 million people. Now, that would make it one of the top 10 cities in the US by population. It would make it the second largest city in the UK where I'm from. So we're talking about enormous investment and enormous skills base. And that's going to be very, very, very hard to extract from if Apple was seeking to move away from China. Now, there's talk about Apple moving into India. There's talk about the 5% production that's there and India's aspiration to take that up to 25%. But you can't turn iPhone City off overnight. Equally, you can't turn on a new iPhone City somewhere else overnight. There's a huge amount of work that needs to be done And you have to set up supply chains, value chains. And I can't see Apple moving away from China or moving away from China to any significance um, very easily at all. But a lot of companies are looking for some element of diversification. If they're not leaving China, they're looking for secondary sources just in case because the perils of depending on China entirely are all too evident right now. So do you think that Apple might pursue a diversification strategy which, of course, has costs attending that as well, and yet mitigates certain risks that come from relying too heavily upon one country. I do, Bob, I do. And I think that's probably what we're seeing with the uh, announcements around India and the investments from TSMC and Foxconn in other countries around the world. I think those suppliers are looking to diversify themselves as well. So I do think diversification is on the cards. Diversification can have a cost. I think Apple will be looking to fund some of that cost through some of the excellent work that it's no doubt planning to do in its design. What larger impact, if any, do you think this might have on the chip industry? Because we've seen a number of chip producers in response to the shortage of the last few years talking about standing up new fabs, various places, sometimes even in the United States. Of course, these are billion-dollar ventures and multi-year efforts as well. 
Do you think that this might alter the future plans of the chip industry, thinking that not only because of what Apple's doing, but the fact that other high-tech manufacturers might follow suit, might they have to pivot? I think we'll read a lot about how the chip industry is changing. And I think the scale of some of the players in that industry will mean that they are driving some of that change as well as reacting to some of that change. So I do think that the chip industry will undergo some significant changes over the next 10 years. But as you say, the ability to, or the complexities behind standing up new fabs are plenty. And the number of years it takes to put those fabs and get those fabs up and running, and we could be talking four or five, even more years than that, and building the skills base. So it really is sort of a long-term change. Now, as well, Europe and the US in particular, we'll be looking to major on next generation chips. So much more uh, sort of things that are going into cars and underpinning 5G technology. So they'll be looking to play in that high value game. And I suspect that uh, some of the lower cost countries will remain in the low volume or the lower uh, value, high volume chip market. Do you think possibly that the whole strategy of outsourcing and contract manufacturing is at play here, even going beyond iPhones, even going beyond Apple? I mean, we've already seen Tesla making the decision early on to produce its own batteries, for instance. Other companies, I wonder, might look at this and play kind of a follow-the-leader game and say, hey, maybe we do need to be bringing more in-house. We do need to have better control of our supply chain, even if it means more upfront costs and more costs on our balance sheet. Is it possible to say that that might be a trend going forward? I think we're in the middle of a general restructuring of global trade. And I think two main things spring into my mind when you ask that question. The first one is about what are the high value supply chains of the future? So next generation chip manufacturing, lithium batteries, those are the sort of industries that the next trade revolution is going to be built on. And everybody wants a piece of that pie. So I do expect significant investment and races and battles in those areas over the next decade. And that's going to lead to sort of restructuring on on one level. The second element of it is that I think companies are taking a much more risk-adjusted view of their supply chains, which inevitably, when they perhaps push suppliers to deliver on the basis of cost, quality and speed, is going to change the dynamics with some of their supplier relationships. It's going to where scale permits, perhaps lead to them insourcing. Where scale doesn't permit, perhaps it will lead to them co-sourcing or trying to develop much closer ties with smarter sourcing strategies. So I do think that there's a fundamental sort of restructuring of trade and behaviours happening. But I don't think it's necessarily a simple one. I think that there's multiple forces of work, not least sort of geopolitical tensions that we read about every day. Certainly when it comes to the acquisition of basic raw materials, there has to be a point at which you can't do everything in-house. You're still going to need to get, for instance, rare earth minerals from somewhere outside your company, and that's probably going to be China. Do you think that, obviously, the problem of potential raw material shortages and dependence on China for some of those critical materials, that hasn't been solved yet. Do you see any possibility down the line for some answers to that conundrum? I think this is one of my favorite topics over the last year when we were reading all these stories about people moving from China. And you suddenly say, well, is that really happening? Is that really happening at the pace that we're reading about? Because what we're talking about here is highly specialized supply chains 
highly specialised centres of competence and, of course, raw materials. And you can't just move away from those things or you, you can't move production to, uh, let's say, Mexico or the US or the UK, where I'm from, and then depend on your raw materials because you're just pushing the problem downstream or upstream. India, for instance, when we talk about the 5% of Apple volumes currently being produced there or planned to be produced there, India needs to set up a whole value chain around the iPhone if it plans to get to that 25% that it aspires to do. And you can't do that overnight. And so, yeah, I think the raw materials is a significant barrier when it comes to chip manufacturing in particular. But that challenge is replicated in other sorts of supply chains all around the world. There's so much talk these days on the procurement side of the need for better collaboration with suppliers. I'm not even sure what that word means when it's used that many times, but it has something to do with the fact of moving beyond a purely transactional relationship with your suppliers, having more skin in the game on both sides, which seems to be somewhat in conflict with the idea of diversifying supply base, which also you must do in order to mitigate risk. How does one balance that in a larger sense, do you think? Carefully would be my um, <laughs> my response there, Bob. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And I know what I advise organizations to do is, is not look at their spend and their relationships necessarily through a traditional lens, but to look at them more through alternative lenses, like what relationships are powering growth, which ones are powering purpose commitments, which ones are high risk, which ones are purely productivity, because there is still segmentation to do out there and and there are examples of firms which are highly collaborative but not commercial likewise there are examples of firms which are highly commercial but not collaborative and, and by i'm using commercial probably uh, in the wrong sense there i mean negotiate hard and, and and drive down costs perhaps view that some people think is is a bit old school there i think the reality is that there is balance and hopefully suppliers and buyers can come to this place where they, they recognize that the balance of trade too much in one basket is, is not good for either. But again, that's not necessarily how the world works. And so buyers need to be savvy. The executive needs to buy into the fact that this risk-adjusted view means that you shouldn't have all your eggs in one basket. Uh, and so buyers like, like myself, like the company that I work for, we have to tell holistic stories that go into factors beyond cost, beyond just risk, and really produce a grown-up view of the world. Well, how interesting that this single action by Apple might signal a paradigm shift in the whole larger world of global procurement and supply chains. But Simon Geel of Proximo, thank you so much for sharing your insights into this picture. Really appreciate them, and thank you very much for being with me today. Bob, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. That was my conversation with Simon Geel of Proxima, talking about a major shift in procurement and manufacturing strategy. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.